0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to Crafted on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out all the very many things that we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. This past Sunday, I made the pilgrimage to Oakland, California to visit a remarkable coffee institution called The Crown. The Crown is the brainchild of Royal Coffee CEO, Max Nicholas Fulmer, and it is a beautiful space where there is some very serious work happening in the coffee category, and we're getting pretty experimental there. And we'll be talking more about this beautiful space in Oakland in this conversation. But in addition to all that, Royal Coffee is a company That imports green beans or green coffee from all around the world and then distributes that product for other companies to then roast. And we're gonna talk about this in the conversation too, but this also goes for home roasters. So in this conversation, we are talking about some of the other aspects of coffee and the coffee business because the next best thing to drinking coffee is talking about coffee, obviously. And I promise you, if you are somehow thinking to yourself, wow, you guys have already talked about coffee a lot on Crafted. Well, I guarantee, I will literally guarantee you that you are going to learn some things that are super interesting in this conversation about the process of roasting, and the history of coffee, certainly in this country, and that is a promise to you. This episode of Crafted is presented by our Blister Craft Collective, which is a collection of some of our favorite craft companies, and some of the very best companies across a range of craft categories that support the independent work that we do here at Blister. You can learn more about our Blister Craft Collective on our website, and we'll include a link to the Craft Collective in the show notes of this episode. So check it out, because I am confident that some of these companies are going to become some of your new favorite companies, too. And now, let's talk about one of my favorite things in the world with Royal Coffee CEO, Max Nicholas Fulmer. Here we go. All right. Well, Max, really happy to be here. We're going to talk more about where we are in just a minute. I think we should first talk about how we got connected in the first place. And I guess that means talking a bit about how you got to know about Blister.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it uh, it goes back to uh, a ski, right? And it goes back to... <laughs> The ski that I think is your personal favorite ski, yeah. and that is still my daily driver and my personal favorite <laughs> ski. And it's the uh, the Bibby Blister, now Wildcat uh, by Moment Skis out of Reno. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I've been skiing since I was, you know, four years old, and I'm going to be 40 this year. But I think it was maybe 2013 or 2014. I was looking for a new pair of skis, and I, I had decided at that point that I was really going to do a lot of research and like try to find really exactly what I wanted. Cause I had been skiing. I think I had been on the, um, I'd been on vocal mantras for maybe three years before that. And I really liked that ski. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a stiff ski. It's directional. It like, it does a lot of the things that I want it to do, but it wasn't giving me quite the like rail through chop, you know, just like stability at high speed in like heavy maritime Squaw alley type snow that I was really looking for. I mean, it, it was great, but like I did find at certain times it would get hung up. The tips would kind of get hung up and I wanted something that was really going to float and really going to power through, but at the same time still be like, not just like having, you know, railroad ties strapped to the bottom of your feet. Yeah. And I came across Blister just in my online research and I was reading the reviews that you had put up about the, the Bibby. And then I think at that time it was actually called the blister pro because we'd come out with that, that special model. And, uh, yeah, I ordered a pair that year and, um, I have, I've never skied. I mean, I I have many other skis, but I, that has been my daily driver go-to ski ever since. So yeah, that's, that was my connection with blister. And, um, you know, I've, I've gotten your gear guides ever since been a, been a member of your website and all that. And then, uh, (laughs) Yeah, when you started this uh, this crafted thing, I felt like you know it was it was kind of fate. You know, the, the <laughs> moons were aligning, and that I I kind of had to reach out to you at that point, just because the the overlap between coffee and skiing is is pretty narrow. And you know, if it's if it's you and me, there's oh, yeah. there's maybe ten other people. No, that are <laughs> <laughs> no, no. There, no, no. So. <laughs> I
0: can I can correct you on that one. Not every skier perhaps is obsessed with coffee, but I assure you from my email inbox there are a whole lot of folks out there who are very passionate about skiing and very passionate about coffee and uh so i think they will they will approve of this conversation and i very much like the fact that the blister pro is responsible for you know bringing us together today that seems very fitting and uh it does and i'm even more glad now that i kind of fought and dug in my heels that we needed to keep that Ski around and uh and look now here we are, so
1: yeah, and I mean they've been incredibly successful with that too, like yeah. it's you know when you when you ride up in Tahoe these days, like the number of moment skis that you see everywhere is is pretty impressive hmm. um It's really cool to see what that company has done, and it's uh I'm sure you feel like you had a little bit of a hand in that, just with <laughs> the amount of uh pub that you've given them on hmm. blister like it's obviously they make the ski, but I think you've done a great job kind of getting the word out too. Hmm. To the well, general public. yeah. And,
0: you know, props to moment. I mean, they've, they've done a great job managing that brand, dialing things in, you know, so, um, but I, you know, I do remember at that time, actually, when we first, you know, had the conversation with Luke Jacobson, which we've talked about on Blister, he's like, hey, we changed the bibby. Don't hate the ski till you actually ski it. And I was like, I did go ski it in New Zealand. I was like, okay, it's a good ski. It's a different ski from what I loved. So, hey, Luke, can we just, can you keep making it? We'll call it the Blister Pro. And I don't know if I've shared this story or not. I don't think Luke would mind me saying it now. But so that ski, thankfully, Luke did say, okay, we'll do it. But they had a really rough, really rough winter in Tahoe that year that Mm -hmm. it came out. And Luke hit me up and was like, hey, I just want to let you know those skis were selling like crazy, those blister pros. And he's like, it really helped the company on a really low snow year in Tahoe. Mm-hmm. And I think probably, I'm I'm saying more than I know now, but I think Moment has grown enough as a company that they're probably less dependent right now, sure. sort of on that
1: regional sales. yeah. But at the time, yeah. I think that Was that the year that they actually came out with the ski called the Tahoe? The Moment Tahoe? I think the Tahoe was out earlier. Okay. Because that was like, that was their super low tide. Like it was kind of an ironic name, right? It was like their, I don't even know if, was it like 97 underfoot or something? It was like, ninety eight, yeah. And it was just like, they built it for like, you know, just super low tide years. And it was like, is this where we're going in Tahoe? Like, and I remember they put out a blog post when they released that ski and it was like, We don't know what the future of skiing in Tahoe is going to be, but this ski, you know, we're going to be around, we're going to be making skis that will help you ski, whatever it is. And I think we've been fortunate since then. We've had some big winners, but it's a good reminder. It's a scary reminder of like, we're not that far away from, you know, really lean years. I remember those years. It was pretty depressing.
0: Yeah. And then you had a very non-depressing
1: last season. Oh my God. Yeah, Yeah. This last year in Tahoe was just unbelievable. I mean, it. The thing, so for the prior two seasons, like um, 2020 and 2021, we would start and we'd get like the big December or the big January dump, and then it would kind of peter out, you know, and you'd get the typical like January, you know, six weeks of of spring and then, you know, maybe another storm. This year, it started in December and it just kept going. I mean, it. I think I was skiing even in November this year, you know, it was like, we just kept getting storm after storm after storm. And like every cycle was like a bullseye right on Tahoe or, you know, maybe down at Mammoth or something, but like none of them missed. Like normally you get the years where it's like, you start seeing these big storms and like a week out, everyone's excited. And then the forecast changes and it peters out and it, you know, the storm splits and goes one way or the other. It just didn't happen this year. Like we just kept getting hammered over and over again. So and it wasn't just Tahoe. I mean, like Utah was just, I mean, they set literal records yeah. this year, right? Like literal that, was, records. that was unbelievable.
0: And you managed to sneak 50-something days in while also running this rather um, significant company that we're going to be talking about here in a moment. I'm not totally sure how
1: you pulled all this off. <laughs> I made a, a commitment this year that I was – I was going to commit myself to skiing It, you know, I wanted to get at least 40 days and, you know, really 50 was the goal. And, um, you know, I knew that in order to do that, I was going to have to find ways around, you know, being able to work while I was skiing. And, you know, part of that was, you know, with the pandemic, we went to remote work. My company had no culture of remote work before the pandemic at all. Like we, we were in the office mm-hmm. every day, all the time, everyone in the company. We didn't have anyone who was working off site. Everyone was there, you know, 7.30 in the morning to 4.30 in the afternoon. And the pandemic forced us to like pivot on a dime. And it, uh I personally really love remote work because, you know, you can do things like ski 50 days a year mm-hmm. and, and still continue to have a successful company. And it's like, I kind of came to the realization of like, what are we, what are we really doing this for if not to enjoy it, you know? So, um, while I, I understand the importance of uh, you know, putting the company first, and, and that is always the priority, um, you know, when, when we have a winner to, to take advantage of, like this last one, I was unfortunate to be in a position where I could actually do that. Mm.
0: <laughs> so let's talk about this company. Um, and that then also means, you know, perhaps let's talk a bit about where you and I are sitting right now. Um, I, it's a fascinating business. This is something that I don't think gets talked about a lot, even maybe even with a you know, company like Blister that maybe seems to never stop talking about coffee. Um, but um, so let's let's get into it. Um, yeah.
1: So so Royal Coffee is my company and it's uh, my it's a family company. Uh, we've been around since 1978 uh, and we are coffee importers. So we buy the physical unroasted green coffee and we import it from the countries where it grows. So we're working with farms, uh, farmer cooperatives, exporters, millers. Um, we make the contract with them and then we figure out how to move that physical product to where it needs to go. So we actually get it onto a steamship get it into a container. We move it to say the port of Oakland, or uh, in certain cases, we might be selling it to a customer in China, or we have customers now in Saudi Arabia and New Zealand, South Korea. So we're, we're selling coffee all over the world, but we are responsible for actually moving it from the country where it is grown to the place where the final roaster is going to use it. And so roasting companies are our customers and farmers and cooperatives are our suppliers.
0: Yeah. So this is perhaps why conversations like this don't come up very much. Is that coffee dorks around the world can name and rattle off some of their favorite coffee shops, some of their favorite roasters, etc. But we are now talking about green. Do we say green beans? Are yeah. we allowed to just say green beans? Green beans. Yeah. yeah, green beans. That's the term. So how does one get into this business
1: and why (laughs) uh how does one get into it well i got into it be sort of through serendipity and through family connection my grandfather was born in hawaii i moved to san francisco after he graduated from college and he um just happened to go to work for a, a coffee importer you know a coffee merchant on california street in san francisco uh in the 1960s and of got his feet wet in that industry uh, ended up moving out to singapore uh, as a in his middle age and became a coffee trader in singapore um, did very well and he um, you know through those connections uh, you know i have uncles and cousins and uh, and lots of other people on on that side of the family who are who are all coffee people and so it's sort of in my blood in that way um, this company royal coffee was founded by my cousin and my father in 1978 and um you know we've we've kind of just uh, ridden the wave of of the development of the specialty coffee industry in the world you know and royal has been around long enough that we've kind of seen the the different trends and and we've been fortunate to benefit from the growth and interest in in coffee globally that i think is now parallel with the interest that you know, happened here on the West coast.
0: Yep. So literally kind of came up in the family business. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. My first job was at our warehouse. So I was, sure. uh, I think I was 14 years old and I was unloading containers by hand. Um, I worked as a barista, uh, in our prior coffee shop. Um, there's actually a picture of it on the wall right there behind you. That was oh, the yeah. original one. Um, and, uh, I worked as a, in the QC department, um, at at Royal coffee. And then, um, when I graduated from college in 2006, it took about a week off. And then I started work as a, like a bottom run of the totem pole, uh, sales assistant, you know, taking, talking to new accounts, trying to develop business. Um, and I just sort of did that as I worked my way up to trader, um, did that for about 10 years. Um, and then for the last, say six or seven years, I've been in more of a management role. Um, and then recently, you know, within the last five years, I've been the, the CEO of the company uh, as my dad has kind of transitioned out to retirement. Hmm. Hmm. So where do we go here?
0: This history of green beans or history of coffee trends um, in the U S where do you think we should go?
1: I think you said something earlier that was really interesting. And you were talking about how, um, your interest in coffee has mirrored an understanding of like light roast and dark roast or, you know, different coffee profiles that you can, you can get. And I, I can't remember exactly how you put it, but you said like, you felt like originally the, you felt like you were supposed to be more into light roast light coffee. Roast, and yep. maybe you can say that again. Cause I think there's, there's a history that predates that, that I think will inform the conversation a little bit. So,
0: well, I guess this is a pattern now. I end up saying this, I said this uh, after our last crafted podcast with Karen Hoskins, we were talking about rum. It's kind of similar. She and I spent like three or four hours together first, like just talking about everything. We've kind of done a similar thing today. But I was saying to you that as I try to identify trends and sort of what's considered cool right now and where things are going... I probably said something like, it seems like all the action is on light roasts. Mm -hmm. And if you're really into coffee, you know, if you're really in, if you're really down, you are talking about light roasts and kind of, you know, with it moving toward like closer and closer to what I would describe as tea Mm -hmm. and it's real floral and yada, yada, yada and it was like yeah nobody's really over here talking about dark roast stuff like that's like almost the, the sign or the signal like oh you don't you're not really into coffee mm-hmm. if you're over there and so i was probably saying something like that
1: yeah so the really interesting thing is that if you were you in 1985 or 1990 uh, in san francisco you would have said the same thing but you would have switched the, the terminology yep. around no one is interested in light roast anymore. If you're serious about coffee, it's dark, dark roast. It's yeah. all about dark roast, right? It was, that was the era of, uh, Alfred Pete and Narsi David. And they were, you know, they had really like come up with this thing that at that time, no one had really tasted before. It was, it was this super dark roast and they were bringing in coffees like, um, Sumatra Mandaling and Ethiopian Harar and coffees that really lend themselves well to being roasted dark like that. But the history goes even further back. So if we go back, say a hundred years to 1920 at that time in the United States, there was a huge number of local roasters. Like every, every town in America would have its own little roasting shop. And a lot of them were, you know, at least doing, uh, it was fresh coffee because, you know, you didn't have to go very far. You knew the person who was roasting your coffee. What happened in the, say, post-war world, like in the 1950s and 1960s, there was a wave of consolidation. So a lot of those local roasters got bought up by bigger companies and the trend started going towards lighter and lighter roasts. And the reason for that had nothing to do with quality Uh and had everything to do with economics. It's just because lighter coffee weighs more than darker roasted coffee. Because when you're roasting it dark, there's more water leaving. And so it's going to weigh less by volume. So you can actually sell the same amount of coffee if it's light roast and you're gonna make more money on it than if you're selling the same volume of coffee as a dark roast. Because there's fewer beans yes, in a bag of 12 right. ounce. Okay. Yeah, you're gonna wow. fill a 12 ounce bag, but the actual weight is gonna be different. Right. Uh-huh. So it's that had to do with just pure consolidation. And that was like the era of, say, Maxwell House and uh and Folgers. Mm-hmm and it was really kind of a race to the bottom that happened but ironically it was with super light roast coffee <laughs> like it's not it's not what you'd expect when now light roast has become this thing that's incredibly popular so the the reaction that happened in the 1980s with really dark roast was a reaction against the commercialization you know the really light roast that had happened in the 60s and 70s it's just a pendulum that swings back and forth
0: so that's interesting because i First of all, I don't know the last time I had like a cup of Folgers Mm -hmm. or Maxwell House, but I remember having some of that when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was like, coffee is horrible. Apparently, becoming an adult is the worst thing in the world because you like the worst drink I've ever had type of thing. (laughs) Uh But, but maybe that means, you know, by like, I guess the 80s, that Folgers and Maxwell House had swung to the dark side because i i've i've never i mm-hmm. don't think i i can't recall ever seeing tasting like a folgers that my associations are only with super dank dark mm-hmm. burnt yeah tasting coffee I would so, say apologies probably, to folger i don't know but no
1: no i mean i don't think they're probably not listening anyway they're probably not listening <laughs> yeah they don't ski they didn't get they didn't ski 50 folgers days. Don't ski. yeah um no, I mean, probably you're right. By the, by the eighties, they probably had started catching on to that trend of, of darker roast. But what I'm talking about is really like in the say 1950s and 1960s, uh-huh. uh, especially like the canned coffees that you would see, like U uh, U-Ban is a great example. And those coffees were ubiquitous or um, there's a really famous brand here in San Francisco, Hills Brothers coffee. There's still a sign over by the Bay Bridge. Huh. It's the guy, the, the Middle Eastern looking guy who's carrying the can. That's the, that's the logo. For their company, and and that coffee was really kind of a prime example of something that was really light roasted. And in addition to being really light roasted, they were also using not very good coffee because they were trying to keep the price down. So a lot of it was a price war, um, and you know they they felt like the way to the consumer's heart was to sell them something cheaper. Obviously that can only go so far until the quality gets so bad that people don't really like it anymore. And they yeah. have the reaction that you had where you're like, God, this is terrible. Yeah. Is this what being an adult is? Yeah. I don't even want to drink this. Yeah. But what happens is it opens up space for somebody to do something different and to do something better. And that is kind of the story of coffee over the last century here in the United States. And I think globally where it swings one direction because of commercial interests but then that actually opens up a space for the craft coffee to come in and, and to do something different and do something better. The interesting thing is that what better has looked like in different decades has been completely different, mm-hmm. right? Better in 1990 was the exact opposite end of the spectrum to better in 2006. Better in 2006 was like, we're going to roast this to first crack. We're going to- Brew it with an extremely low rate of extraction. We're going to have a really low rate of TDS, which is total dissolved solid. So that's the basically the amount of coffee that you're using to, to brew the, the beverage, the amount of of dry coffee. Um and that's a conversation we can get into too, because I think a lot of the a lot of the difference between light roast and dark roast doesn't necessarily come down to the color of the coffee or the roast. A lot of it is people's preference with how strong they want their coffee uh-huh. to be. Um, light roasted coffees lend themselves better to low TDS extraction. So oh. a light roasted coffee is going to be better at a lower dose. And because you're going to bring out the kind of top end flavors, the the acidity, the floral flavors, it's going to be a little more like a tea like beverage. So it's going to be thinner. It's going to be more delicate. It's going to get a lot of the kind of front of palate, um, hit those high notes on the opposite end of the spectrum. A dark roasted coffee is going to be much better with a higher rate of TDS more kind of that classic, like heavy, heavy body. Uh, The notes that you're going to bring out are going to be, you know, the body, the chocolate, the nuts, tobacco, um, those types of flavors. And a cup of coffee like that, roasted dark, definitely lends itself to something like say a French press or, uh, or a pour over, um, you know, maybe like a, a Chemex or something like that. And so a lot of that actually comes down to people's preference around, brew extraction more than their preference around roast level Hmm. because if you take a super dark roast coffee and you you brew it at a low tds into this really thin beverage it tastes disgusting Hmm. because you only get the kind of the what the notes that the the light roast aficionados would call like the dirty notes and you don't get any of the body and the sweetness because it doesn't bring that out the opposite end of the spectrum if you take a a super light roast coffee and you try to brew it you know with a really thick high dose you're going to end up with a coffee that just like melts your teeth off like it's going to pull your fillings out it's going to be so acidic that's what we were talking about earlier with espresso okay. like these pressurized extractions what you're doing there is actually you're extracting more of the coffee flavor out so you're going to that coffee is going to taste even more like what you think it tastes like so All if right. you take something like a super high acidity kenya that already is going to have a lot of citrus a lot of uh a lot of floral a lot of acidic kind of notes and you roast it light and you do a low dose and you run it through an espresso machine it's like you've just ticked all the boxes to to have that be the most acidic coffee that you can possibly create so like you better really like that and some people do but it also like there's a limit i think to how far you can go in that direction and i think we got to that point around 2008, 2009, 2010 where it was like some people just aren't roasting their coffee at all. Like, you know, they're like they're taking their coffee and it's it's getting to first crack maybe and you, it's not really Let me pause you
0: on that. You've said first crack twice and I've never heard that term.
1: Okay, so when you're roasting coffee, there uh there's a audible sound that is made in the roaster that the coffee actually makes. Uh the first one is the first crack and that's kind of the i was showing you earlier the um the roast development curve right? yeah and so you could see the um the drying phase the mylard phase and the development phase you can think of first crack as kind of the point between the drying phase and the mylar phase mm-hmm. and that's kind of the point at which the caramelization of the sugars starts second crack is kind of the end of that mylard stage and that's when the development phase starts and that's the point at which you start getting like the Carbonization. So you actually are are burning the physical organic material at that point. So at that point, you you kind of want to drop the heat so that you're not actually burning the coffee. But if you're only roasting the coffee to first crack and you're dropping it then, you're missing out on a lot of that mylard reaction, which is mylard is actually sugar browning. That's what it means. And so that's the caramelization point. Yeah. So that's what creates sweetness in coffee. So there literally were companies who are like, yeah, we roast to first crack and then we stop because we're we're light roast purists. So like, what's more pure than not stopping, (laughs) like not roasting your coffee at all. Right. But what they were missing is like, well, yeah, but people actually like sweetness in their coffee. Like they want their coffee to be caramelized. Yeah. You know? So it's like, just like anything, too much of a good thing is, can be too much.
0: That's fascinating. So wait, literally first crack means we are doing this based off an audible. Oh yeah. That's it. So we could sit around quietly watching this roast. And the minute you and I hear that crack, if if we're on the purest side of things, we're like, shut it all down. We're
1: good. We've hit it. <laughs> I have two customers who own roasting companies. One of them is in uh, Minden, Nevada. So right outside Carson City. Yeah. The other one is in Shanghai, China. They are both completely blind. Cannot see at all. They roast their coffee entirely by smell and by audible sound. So they listen to the sound that the coffee is making and they smell the development and they're both great roasters. They know exactly what they're doing. They don't need sight at all.
0: All right. This is the point. I always say this, this is where I'm going to ask hopefully the dumbest question of the conversation, but you know, we'll see. Okay. But there wouldn't be just one first crack. If one bean is going to crack- mm-hmm. Now we're gonna get into popcorn it's a rolling
1: sound, yeah, so you it starts with like one little pop, 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 pop pop, 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 popcorn, and then it fades out to pop, 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 so it's like, yeah, it doesn't all happen exactly at the same time, but it's it's a range of
0: but then so we go through, we can think about like popcorn popping, then does it go to silent, yeah, it goes to silent, and then how long ish? Till we get to the second. A trend. few minutes. A few minutes.
1: Yeah. Or a couple minutes. Okay. Yeah, it's that, that mylar phase, you know, again, there are different things you can do with airflow with gas to, to either lengthen or shorten that phase. Um, but yeah, it's, it's in the range of, of minutes, not, not longer than that.
0: And we were down talking with Doris, mm-hmm. um, your roaster. Yep. And she was showing us these roasting curves and the rest. And she was like, the Mylard phase, that caramelization phase, that's where the magic happens. Yeah,
1: it definitely is. I mean, that is that is literally where you are browning the sugar. That's where you are taking this thing that is, you know, green coffee, if you were just to brew it into a tea, tastes really grassy, right? It's going to have a lot of like organic material, a lot of like greenish type of flavors. That Mylard phase is where you develop the flavors that people associate with coffee, like that you know, you called it earlier, like the melted Snickers bar in your mouth. Like that's you where love you get that. You really love that. Are <laughs> you going to like use that? I'm going to steal it. Yeah. That's absolutely. awesome. I'm this, like, I feel like I've, it's <laughs> I've, like a great achievement of mine. But yeah, I mean, that's where you get the the chocolate, the caramel, the the nice nutty flavors that all happens in that, during that Mylar reaction. So we talked about first crack, second crack, i.e.
0: the Mylar phase, mm-hmm. the caramelization. And then to finish things off as we're talking now, we've sort of moved into a a roasting curve uh, description. Mm-hmm. So, what happens after a second crack, the, after the myelard phase?
1: Yeah. So, at that point, that's when you are actually starting to char like the organic material. So, that's when you get a carbonization. So, as opposed to caramelization, the sugar is browning. Carbonization, you're actually getting like a blackening of the organic material. The coffee is starting to burn at that point. And a small amount of burning can be desirable if you want smokiness if you want some of those flavors. But undeniably, the longer you go after second crack, the more burnt your coffee is going to taste. So yeah. that that is something that for people who don't like those smoky flavors, like they want to stay away from second crack. For me, I don't think there's any one way wait, to- Wait, wait,
0: wait. Stay away? Not stay away from second crack. From second crack, yeah. Second crack, I thought, was the
1: start of Mylard. First crack is the start of the Mylard. Second crack is the end of Mylard.
0: Second crack is the end of yeah. important okay so yeah if we don't like the what i sort of describe as like burnt cigarette or like that that's not even a thing burnt cigarette cigarettes aren't burnt but like that cigarette
1: yeah ashtray kind of flavor
0: ashtray flavor yeah. which i'm not stoked on right. and that is what i used to associate with dark roasts yep. but you can do dark roasts that avoid, if you avoid sec, wait, okay, explain that. We can avoid second crack. You're not going
1: to do a dark roast without avoiding second crack. Like second crack and dark roast are synonymous Synonymous. with each other. Yeah. But there's ways to do dark roast well and ways to do it really not well. And I think we were talking about this earlier. The reason that a lot of people don't like dark roast is that the companies that they're buying from also don't like it. And they kind of treat it that way. They use Mm. coffee they need to get rid of Uh, They don't necessarily care about developing a great profile. They kind of just do it as this perfunctory thing. Like, well, we're expected to have a dark roast because some of our customers ask for it. Uh, But it's like, if you're only doing something because you feel like you have to, you're not going to end up with a product that anyone really feels proud of. So it's not a surprise that no one at your company and none of your customers really like it because you don't like it to begin with. So I think there's a good way to to approach a dark roast, which is like, we're going to treat this just like we would treat a really high-end light roast coffee. We're going to select a green coffee that we think is actually going to do well as a dark roast. That's the first thing. You don't want to take a coffee that's going to just like fall apart in the roaster. You need something that's pretty dense. So first of all, you need a coffee that is grown at a fairly significant altitude. You need a coffee that's going to have quite a bit of body and sugar and sweetness to it inherently, because then you're going to try to bring those flavors out even more through the roasting process um if you use say a a really low-grown coffee like say uh there's coffee in hawaii like kona coffee it grows at 500 feet it's basically like grows at sea level Uh. most coffee grows at you know up to 1500 meters 2000 meters so you're talking about way up in the mountains this coffee in hawaii is grown really low the beans are super soft like they're really spongy if you tried to roast one of those coffees dark it would just burn. It would oh. just catch on fire in the roaster. It would, you know, I mean, literally, if you left it in there for long enough, it would it would catch on fire. I mean, that that's the case with any coffee, but they're, it's so soft that it just can't take the heat of a dark roast like that. So that would be a terrible candidate to try to roast dark.
0: Let me ask on that front then, man, we have talked about altitude and roasting, like we did that with Sam Higbee from First Ascent, where they're roasting in Crested Butte. We're literally at about 9,000 feet. But I have not thought about beans mm-hmm. and altitude, yep. and so the the closer to sea level we are, as a, as a rule, mm-hmm. we could expect those beans to be softer. Yeah, and then what are those? Those are just better for light roasts.
1: They're going to be better for lighter roast. Yeah, and they're they're generally going to have um, kind of softer attributes. Like uh, if you think of say nutty flavors like macadamia nut. Like that's kind of a soft flavor, right? Like something like that. When you think of like Brazilian coffees, you often think of kind of nutty flavors. Those are fairly low altitude coffees. They're grown typically around a thousand meters. Something like a a Kenya or an Ethiopia, the altitude might be twice that. They're grown at two thousand meters, and those coffees really don't have any nutty flavors. They have, um, in a lot of cases, you know, really pure fruit flavors. They have really high acidity notes. It might be like a citrus, like an orange or something. Those beans are also going to be really dense. So, you know, the way you have to approach roasting that coffee is completely different from the way you would approach a Brazil. And then once you've roasted it, that's only like the very beginning of the process, right? Because you still have to think about how you're going to grind it, how you're going to brew it, how you're going to serve it, extract it. And all of those things are factors that they should be working together in harmony to create like an end goal that you had in mind from the beginning, right? Like you're thinking like, I want my coffee to taste like this you need to work backwards and say okay what are the things i need to do with the extraction with the grind with the roast and then with the actual green coffee that i'm selecting to begin with mm. so like that's kind of what we're doing here and you had asked earlier where we're sitting so we're sitting at the crown which is our our R&D center and our our training center and our our uh, tasting room here in uh in Oakland California on on Broadway we opened this in 2019 and the idea was kind of How can we explore the different possibilities in coffee? And it was kind of a reaction to that, the pendulum swinging that I was talking about earlier before, Mm. right? It's like, you know, you see everyone thinks, well, coffee should be roasted super dark in the eighties. And then you go, you know, it's 2005 and everyone's saying, you know, roast it really light. And it's like, well, everyone's right. And everyone's wrong, right? There's not, there's not a single right way to approach coffee. There's a lot of different right ways to approach a lot of different coffees, and that's what we wanted to get across to people and that's kind of the goal of this building and the goal of this place as a as an online presence an in institution and as a physical institution as far as like the classes that we teach and the the seminars and stuff that we do um so it really is trying to encourage people to think of like how can we push the boundaries of coffee and how can we approach every coffee on its own terms rather than thinking about one dogmatic way to, to do something right?
0: Mm-hmm. I love that. It's funny. I, as you were talking, I found myself actually thinking about like the fashion world. Mm-hmm. And it's like, as I get older, and so you spend a few more days on this planet than I had previously... I'm like, oh my God, the fashion world is literally just pendulum swings. And so we just went through a whole super skinny, super tight jeans phase. And we are literally back to like, Big ass, wide jeans. It's just the 1990s yeah. all over again. Yeah. I'm like, it is exactly the same. Right. We are right back to where we were. Yeah. And I think when I was younger, I was like, I don't know. I guess fashion is sort of on this linear yeah. model. Is like, no, not, not what, not at all. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's what you're maybe describing a little bit.
1: I'm sure you see it in ski design too, right? Like, there's, I mean, there's trends towards things like, you know, rocker profile and and that sort of thing, right? right? Like for a while we were seeing skis that barely had any effective edge to them at all. Yeah. These massive rockers and skis that, you know, would actually be dangerous if you were on firm conditions. And now we've kind of, I think, started to move away from that again. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure you see that, you know, with with other ski design trends as well, right? Yeah. Like-
0: but I, I do think where – where the analogy breaks down talking about what you are doing in this space, the crown, you aren't there merely to like when the coffee pendulum swings too far toward the light end or swings too far to the dark end. You're not there to just pull everybody back to like a center. You're trying to get weird. Mm -hmm. Like you are trying to get weird and experimental and sort of push the boundaries for what people even think is possible with coffee. I, how'd I do? I think I did pretty. good. I would good. say
1: that's right. I mean, it, we. So a lot of it starts with coffee processing, right? And when I say processing, I'm talking about the processing of the actual coffee fruit. And so I think and I've listened to a few of the episodes that you've had about coffee on here, and I know you've talked about fully washed coffee versus versus natural processed coffee. So coffee is a cherry. The coffee bean is the seed of the cherry. A natural processed coffee is dried in that whole cherry. A fully washed coffee has the fruit removed and then it's dried in the in the parchment in the in the bean that's covered in a sort of paper parchment. Those are the two kind of archetypal like you know big uh headings for coffee processing, but they're by far not the only ways that you can process coffee. There's a lot of things that you can do that are sort of in between, kind of a hybrid. There's one called a honey process where you remove only the skin of the cherry, but you actually leave the fruity, sticky part on there. And then you process it like a natural processed coffee. There's something called a wet hold coffee, which is really popular in uh, Indonesia, where it's really like a wash coffee. But when you remove it from the parchment is different rather than drying it all the way down to the point where it's basically as dry as green coffee is when they export it. They actually hold that coffee at about 30 percent moisture. So it's really wet and spongy at that point by doing that, they expose it to a lot more oxygen they um they create this like much darker, heavier profile. The color of the coffee actually changes. it's a really dark green color. The flavor profile is super heavy body, you know really tobacco, really earthy um and it kind of gives it that characteristic like Indonesian flavor that people associate with that origin, and all of that comes from the way that the coffee is processed. And that's just those are even still like those are those are high end headers like Mm. we're now getting into things like, um, you know, people have taken stuff from the wine industry. So like carbonic maceration, uh, anaerobic fermentation and all of these things, what we're talking about is how you're removing the fruit from the seed. Right. And there's different ways that you can do that, different rates that you can go at there's even companies now that are developing different types of yeast that you can add to the fermentation tank. And so yeast obviously is going to consume the enzymes, right? Right. And so um, different types of yeast will create different flavors. A lot of the yeasts are also done to um, homogenize the process. So, um, you know, coffee, just like wine fermentation relies on uh, ambient temperature and, you know, ambient conditions in the place that you're doing it. So say you're located in a, in a country like Guatemala Um, you're worried about climate change, you know, typically you've been able to process your coffee and you can rely on the temperature being pretty cold at night, uh, fairly low humidity, but say now, you know, it's 10 years later and you're getting more nights where it's kind of warm and humid and you're worried about that. Well, now maybe you can add this yeast to your coffee that this company, they're actually called Scott labs and they're, they're doing some really cool stuff Hmm. and they, um, you can add a yeast to your process and maybe that actually kind of balances out. And it makes it so you don't actually have to worry about that ambient temperature as much. You still have to be aware of it because you have to know how much yeast you're going to need to add. But it's a another tool that a coffee processor has in their toolkit to use. And then, you know, I haven't even gotten into like the sort of the non-coffee additives. So there's people doing stuff like, um, you know, ginger, lime fermentation, uh, cinnamon, cinnamon coffee, uh, pineapple juice. Like we've had, some, I just came back from Shanghai. We were at a show. We had a coffee that was fermented with pineapple juice and it was terrible. It was really, really bad. I never want to drink it again, but it was, it was a big hit at this show that we were at. There were a lot of people that were really interested in it because they had never tasted anything like that. You know, it's like, I don't know if you're, we haven't talked about music, but you know, if you think about like, um, I'm pretty into electronic music and, you know, 10 years ago, the first kind of dubstep albums were coming out and it was like, you know, Skrillex came yeah. out with that first album and it was like, Oh my God, like, what is this? Yeah. This sounds like nothing I have ever heard before. And now you go back and you listen to it and it's like, maybe I don't want to listen to that every day. Right. <laughs> that's that's kind of a lot. Right. And he obviously as a DJ has adapted and he, his style has continued to evolve. But right. like, that was, you know, he was hitting people over the head with that. Yeah. And that's the same thing happening with coffee. And you, uh. you know, you see it with like Natty Wine too, where it's like, We're just gonna try something and you know maybe it's gonna be terrible but like you know you throw a hundred things at the wall if one of them sticks you know that's kind of the idea right like you have to you have to break some eggs to to develop uh some really interesting products you're gonna have a lot of misses along the way though yeah
0: wait so in talking about fermenting coffee we're now are we i'm I'm thinking wine world and whiskey worlds etc like are we putting coffee in
1: barrels no well there are people doing that yes that is a thing that's not the normal way that coffee would be fermented when i refer to fermentation with coffee what i'm talking about is uh enzymes actually consuming the mucilage so actually eating away the fruit Uh, before
0: we're ever getting this is before roasting
1: obviously well before roasting this is this is the green coffee processing phase so this happens uh at a place called a wet mill this would be in the country of origin, you know, typically very close to where the farm is, in some cases might actually be on the farm. Um, but this is a key, key step in developing the flavor of the coffee that you actually get. So this, the way the coffee is processed and then afterwards, the way the coffee is dried, those two things are hugely important. One for the shelf stability of the coffee, like how long it's actually going to be viable as a product and two for the actual flavor of the coffee, like the way it's going to taste. Um, almost all of that is developed in the processing stage. And you can take, especially a coffee like, a, say, a Guatemalan or Costa Rican coffee, you can go any direction with that coffee. You could turn that coffee into a huge fruit bomb that you would think was from Ethiopia. You could turn that coffee into just like the classic sort of fully washed Colombian profile. You could do a honey process and get something different. You could do one of these anaerobic fermentations that I'm talking about. And it would taste completely different from everything I've already mentioned. So uh, processing is really the stage where I think the magic happens. Uh, it's sort of like the analogy would be like to the the Mylard phase of the roast, right? right. Like that's where you're you're really like setting down your tracks and you're deciding which direction you're going to go with the product.
0: When we're talking about coffee and different countries and we're also talking a lot about trends and i think it's really interesting to hear you talking about like what is happening at the forefront even you know bad ideas perhaps like fermenting with pineapple etc etc what can you tell us about trends in terms of countries or specific regions Mm -hmm. um is it the same kind of pendulum swings or are we i'd be curious to hear if You know, we do have, like thinking about the wine world, there are certain places like Bordeaux, there's Napa, and some real premiums get uh, allocated Mm. or set on these specific regions. Do we have that same kind of
1: thing in the coffee world? I think so. It's not quite to the level of wine, but there have been developments and there are sort of micro regions and and also varietals of coffee that are associated with with premiums uh we were talking earlier about geisha varietal yeah and so that's a, a varietal that is related to sort of some of the original ethiopian heirloom seed stock that was actually transplanted over to panama uh in the early 2000s and has subsequently spread to colombia um really all over the world at this point but the The Panama Geisha that happened around 2006, 2007, that was coffee that was scoring, you know, 96, 97 points. It was winning every competition. Um, I remember going to the best of Panama competition. It was the first trip I ever took once I had graduated from college when I was really kind of working at Royal full-time. And it was the second year that that coffee had ever been commercially available. And so, for most people, it was the first time they were ever tasting it. Mm Including myself and the reaction of like all of these professional cuppers and people who are, you know, at that time were kind of where I am now in the industry, you know, people who were CEOs of these companies, they had all come down because they had heard about it and they knew the impact that it was going to have and the reaction it was going to have. And that farm, uh, Finkel and Esmeralda, subsequently went on to hold their own auctions and they eventually were selling that coffee for thousands of dollars a pound, you know, and you're talking about like, they might sell five pounds of coffee for you know five thousand dollars. Like that's pretty crazy because coffee in general, you know, the price of coffee today on the New York commodity market is I think a dollar eighty per pound, and the historical range of coffee is maybe a dollar twenty up to say maybe three dollars at the high end. There's been a few times when it's gone above that. So you're talking about a thousand dollars a pound. That's just like it's that's totally true. off the scale of like commercial coffee or like what, what is possible with coffee pricing? And that kind of opened the door. And there's obviously when you get something like that, you get a lot of pretenders who then want to come in and think that they have something that's going to be as good. Maybe they don't, but you know, we have had other coffees that have been developed over the years that I think have, have been equally good and equally exciting. And, um, yeah, a a lot of those doors do get opened by, by something new and by people trying something different like taking a varietal from Africa and and transplanting it in Panama and seeing what happens. Mm.
0: So at this particular point in time, June 2023, is there kind of the hottest country or hottest region? Again, trends, this stuff could be a completely different answer mm. 6 months from now, 12 months from now. Yeah. But is it or is it not so simple or Are we actually seeing a lot more openness and diversity in terms of where people are getting their
1: beans from? I think that's what's most exciting for me because I do think that's the period that we're in now. It's a little bit of a golden age in the sense that I think we've kind of made peace in the coffee wars as far as like, you know, between the different styles. Like, it's okay for you to like a dark roast if it's a certain type of coffee, it's okay for you to like a light roast if it's. If it's something that should be roasted light um people are really cool with with different origins so like i served you a coffee from ecuador earlier um we have coffee here from bolivia that we're serving these are origins that are really were pretty unknown 10 or 15 years ago and now there's a a massive openness and acceptance to to thinking of of coffees from those places as being good you know it's you still have i think the built-in prejudices which in a lot of cases are earned so coffee from Ethiopia is fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people know that and it there's a reason for it. Coffee from Colombia, also great. Guatemala, um, you know, some of these countries, like they have a history of coffee cultivation. There's a reason that they're associated with great coffee and they will continue to be. But I think there's now room for, for other origins. You know, you're saying like, um, maybe a little earlier, but like Rwanda and Burundi, uh, say 15, 20 years ago, really were associated with very low quality, you know, kind of commercial grade coffee. And in the intervening period, they've been able to develop a specialty industry and bring buyers in and, and, uh, you know, really raise the bar in terms of the quality that they're selling. And so now nobody would bat an eye if you said, I have a Burundi coffee and I want to charge you $6 a pound for it. You know, people would be totally willing to try that. And, and in a lot of cases to actually pay that price
0: let's switch things up here.
1: Talk about home roasting.
0: Um, We've actually talked a decent amount now on Crafted about home brewing, a little bit on home roasting. We had a conversation recently with founder of Calibration Coffee, who was a home brewer and a home roaster and now has started his own coffee roasting company. But what do you know about the state of, home roasting? What are you seeing? What is Royal Coffee doing to address home roasters?
1: Yeah. This is, again, it's kind of the renaissance of the home roasting moment. When I first heard of the concept of roasting coffee at your house, I kind of scoffed at it. I didn't think it was ever going to turn into anything major at all, just because it didn't really occur to me that someone would spend that much time but looking back, I should have known, like, of course there are people that are gonna want to get that involved. Like I think I I made fun of you earlier walking in here. Like, if you really want to go down the rabbit hole, like here's another world that you can get into. Like you're talking about brewers, but like let me let me show you this roasting yeah. thing over here. Like yeah. you can really, you know, bury yourself in in uh in detail for years, right? Um, but I think what we're seeing, you know, more and more um like I went to the supermarket the other day and we, we have a, a great market around here called Berkeley Bowl. And, um, you can actually buy a two pound bag of green coffee there at the supermarket now. Mm. And it's there for people to take and to roast themselves at their house. And it's very possible that that's coffee that they bought from one of our customers that, that we sold them. I, I have no idea, but you know, we have kind of approached the home roasters, I would say with not trepidation, but like, maybe a little bit of suspicion like is this just a flash in the pan is this something that's gonna just a trend that's gonna blow up and go away Um, but it's continued to grow and we um we actually launched an online product the the crown jewel which is a a 22 pound box of coffee um so typically we sell coffee in uh 60 kilo bags so you're talking about hundreds of pounds of coffee and Uh, a small order from one of our customers might be 10 of those 60 kilo bags, right? So that's 1500 pounds of coffee. A big order, you're talking about 40 to 100,000 pounds of coffee. So this is a much smaller scale, 22 pounds, Um, but it's available online. Uh, We publish a ton of information. We put up roast curves, we put up brew guides, uh, we put up tons of tasting notes, and all of that stuff is available for every one of the coffees that we sell as a crown jewel. And the customers for those coffees are divided pretty 50-50 between uh, small shops. So somebody who owns a retail shop, maybe they have a 10-pound roaster, 10-pound capacity roaster, and they're just selling and roasting to sell out of their own shop. That's about 50% of the sales. The other half is actually home roasters, and it's people who are buying the coffee themselves, roasting at their house. I have an uncle. uh, He lives in in Washington State, and he's a car guy. He's a Mm -hmm. huge, like, tinkerer. And he's definitely not the guy that you think of when you picture roast coffee at your house yourself. Like this is a guy who goes to stock car races. He packs cope, you know, into his, (laughs) 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 he packs cope pouches. Like he's, you know, he's a, I don't know. He's a renter, you know, he's a greasy mechanic kind of guy, but he heard about home roasting and he got really into the idea of working on the machines themselves. And uh, we now send him green coffee and he he roasted himself and he loves it. So you know it's it's interesting like there's a lot of different ways that you can come to come to coffee right and that's that was kind of the the idea with the crown was like how can we expand the reach how can we get this out to more people and like let's just try some stuff and see what happens like we've we've built a really successful business with the importing company you know let's let's see what we can do with that as far as like outreach and and kind of pushing the boundaries and and uh you know it's been really rewarding to to see
0: anybody who is in the Oakland area should come through if you are into coffee come through and my big new pro tip here because i never would have done this coming in like if i'm going into a new coffee shop which by the way that's a thing i do I, I travel a lot i'm always like looking at like okay what are the highest rated coffee shops in an area and then i go in And I'm usually going to order, start with a double espresso. I want to see what they're doing on that front. Then I might get a macchiato or a cortado, or I'll just go to an Americano. But I'm keeping it like, I want to just see what they're doing. I don't order specialty drinks. Mm -hmm. What was fascinating coming in here is we did a bit of a similar thing to start. But then you're like, we do these kind of wild specialty drinks. I'm like, let's go. They were fascinating. And I think, and, and these rotate, right? Yeah. So, my pro tip is if you are coming into the crown, don't do the thing where you're just staying in your lane and staying purist. Mm-hmm. You can go do that in a lot of great coffee shops around you know the world. Try this, try a few of the specialty offerings yeah. because it's kind of a mind opener.
1: Yeah. I would say what's really cool and, and to- piggyback on the pro tip that you just gave. If you do come here, uh, talk to the baristas, talk Mm. to the people who are behind the bar, because they're the ones who developed all these drinks. They do a lot of the work actually that goes online as far as like generating that content, doing the write-ups themselves. So they're super familiar with every coffee that we sell, but they're the ones who actually create those signature beverages. They come up with the idea, they do the testing, um, and then they just kind of tell me and tell tell us like what it's going to be. And it's really cool to see that happen like kind of organically. So if you do come in here, definitely talk to them um, and they can steer you in the right direction for what you're looking for.
0: Mm. It's very cool. It's very cool what you've built up around here. And uh, I do hope folks come check it out. And um, I hope you keep getting 50 plus ski days a year.
1: Yeah, here we go. Let's – Let's get ready for another big winter. I'm, uh, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do any Southern Hemisphere skiing this year, but I do have a New Zealand trip planned for next summer. Ooh. So I've uh, I've done that a couple years, gone down and skied at the Canterbury the Club fields, like uh, stayed at Craggy Burn, yeah, and uh, definitely want to do that again. So I've got a trip, not this coming summer, but next summer to do that. So I, you know,
0: we were on that program. We were going down there like every year. Yeah, and what put a pause on that is I broke my neck. Oh, I broke my neck skiing in the middle of July. It was kind of novelty skiing, yeah, off of Independence Pass, uh-huh. and that is the event that kind of put the pause on us heading down to yeah. New Zealand. And we were would we would go to the club fields, mm. like spend most of our time there. So, I think we need to figure out how to get back on that program.
1: Yeah, so. Um, well, if it's uh, if it's next summer, let me know. Or if it even All not, right. if it's later, I'll I would happily come and join you guys. That'd All be right. awesome. Okay,
0: thank you, sir. What a cool and different angle on this drink we spend a hell of a lot of time talking about on on Blister. Um, yeah, very cool, very fun, and really fun to get your perspective on some of the trends that I just have. I had no clue about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so we might, we might need to revisit this from time to time to get the like forecast Mm -hmm. on like, here's what you can expect to be happening in the, in the coffee world. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah,
1: yeah. you and Cody do the, uh, the state of the union, the state of the ski union, right? I don't know the the state of the coffee union is, is constantly changing and I'm not sure it could be encapsulated in, in 60 minutes, but, uh, I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation that, uh, it's cool to meet you and cool to, uh, to understand a little more about what you're doing at blister and um you know i've been a big fan of your work for a while and obviously uh thank you again for connecting me with the ski that i i love so much (laughs) so yeah this has been great thank you jonathan
0: thank you all right man we'll let you go we'll talk to you soon hope to see you back here soon right on well that's it for this edition of crafted i want to say thanks so much to max for the great conversation and for the hospitality And seriously, any self-described coffee geek needs to stop by the crown. Make the pilgrimage yourself. You won't regret it. I want to say thanks also to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you are enjoying these deep dive explorations on Crafted, I would appreciate it very much if you would take 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts and that will allow us to keep this whole thing going and growing. We've got a number of very interesting conversations coming up for you here on Crafted so let's do this folks. Do your part, you know, do your little part. We'll keep doing ours and we'll all be happy. All right everybody, have a great week and we will talk to you real soon.